Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. We are nearing the end of our series on worship. We have about three more weeks, including today. And every Sunday, just about it, I remind us that one definition of worship is to walk with God. We walk with God as we come here and we worship Him here, but we walk as we go forward in everyday life to serve Him and to worship Him in all that we say and do. Walking with God, this is for seekers, those that seek God. You know, it reminds me of 2010, the movie with Martin Sheen in it. Many of you have seen it. It's called The Way. It's about the Camino of Santiago, that is, St. James Compostela. Supposedly, according to legend, some of the relics of the brother of Jesus, James, are buried there in northern Spain, and there are thousands of people that make a pilgrimage every year. And it's become very popular since that movie. About a quarter of a million people go on the pilgrimage, or parts of it, that ranges from the French Pyrenees to the western coast of northwestern coast of Spain, 472 miles. Not many people walk it all at one time. It takes about 30, 35 days to do it. People seeking different things. Not everybody that goes on that pilgrimage is seeking God, but they're seeking something. You know, every year in the Hajj, Muslims, some Muslims go to Mecca and other sites that were in the life of Abraham and also of uh, Muhammad. The Hajj is expected of every Muslim to do once in their lifetime. About two million of them descend on Mecca every year at the great mosque and walk around the holy tent there, the Ka'apa, as they perambulate around it. About four million every year go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that's a very interesting story. There are about six Christian sects that worship there. Supposedly, it is the site where Jesus was near where he was crucified and upon the site upon which he was buried. We don't know that for sure. But there's a church there, and there are six Christian sects that worship there, and they always are disputing with one another. And partly for that reason, back in the 13th century, one of the leaders in uh, Jerusalem tasked two Muslim families to be the keepers of the Holy Sepulchre key. So isn't that interesting? We have a couple of Muslim families that open and enclose it every day. The Temple Mount, the West Wall, and the Dome of the Rock, we have the conflict of Muslim culture and Christian culture right there in Jerusalem, with over four and a half million pilgrims coming every year. But that doesn't even hold a candle to the number that visit the Shinto shrine in Naiku, Japan. Over 10 million pilgrims every year. But that doesn't hold a candle to the Sikh Golden Temple in Amritsar, India. Almost 30 million people every year visit it. You see, every one of these faith groups has their own pilgrimage seekers that go to these places to find themselves, maybe, to find God. 
There are thousands of Hindu, Hindu shrines throughout India, but there are seven holy cities. There are four key Buddhist shrines that Buddhists try to go sometime in their life. They are places that were key events in the life of the Buddha himself. Four sacred mountains that Taoists consider shrines in China. And here in America, there are four Navajo sites, mountains in Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. People going to these places to seek something, to seek God. What we know from Scripture is that God is a seeker. God seeks those who will worship Him. God's eyes seek to and fro across the world those that will pursue Him and obey Him, we're told in the Old Testament. And He asks us, He invites us to come and to seek Him and to walk with Him. So it brings us today to ask this question, what is it then that He seeks in worship? We've been talking a lot about worship. What is it that pleases Him? What does He seek? And we know very clearly from the passage that we have today in John 4 what it is. It's reduced down to two things. He wants worshipers who do what? They seek Him how? Spiritually and truthfully. They worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, this comes from John 4, which is a rather remarkable chapter, as you know. There are two remarkable revelations that are made there when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. He discloses for the first time in the Gospel of John from the ego I me passages, the I am passages. It's the first one in the Gospel of John where he reveals himself clearly as the Messiah. He also explains what true worship is. Isn't it interesting that this explanation of true worship is given to a woman? Most folks would not even spend an hour or a moment with her by the well. And a Samaritan woman at that, not a Jew. Remarkable revelations by Jesus. We know that the Samaritans were a remnant of the northern ten tribes. Some of the inhabitants had not been um, taken away into Assyria and, and parts east. There were remnants of the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and there were a few Benjamites eventually and some, some Levites that remained behind, and they intermarried then with the colonists that the Assyrians brought in. And eventually they asked for a priest to come from Bethel, a Jewish priest, and he trained them again in the worship of Jehovah. But the worship was never pure. It was always intermixed a hybrid worship with pagan gods. The Samaritan temple then was built later, sometime probably in the 5th century on Mount Gerizim. You see, you remember that the Samaritans had tried to help with the building of the temple in Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel refused to allow them to do so because they would not reject their pagan mates. And so they built their own temple in the 5th century, Mount Gerizim, and it was destroyed by John Hyrcanus, about 113 B.C. Their beliefs, they eventually reformed their beliefs back to a very conservative kind of Judaism where they followed only the Pentateuch, very much like the Sadducees. Their observation of the law was less strenuous than the Pharisees, and that's why the Jews considered them unclean. And they were awaiting the fulfillment of a prophecy from Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, you see, God had promised through Moses that there would come a prophet 
like Moses sometime later. And that was their eschatological hope. That was their end-time hope. They were waiting for this prophet like Moses, if not Moses himself, to come back. And the setting of the story then is at Jacob's well. Jacob, of course, was the common father of both Samaritans and Jews. This well, we don't know exactly where it was, but we think it was near the site of Shechem. It says Sikar. We think that that may be another name for Shechem, upon which the modern town of Nablus is built. There is a well just outside Nablus, about 250 feet or so outside Nablus, that is 100 feet deep, and we think that is the well. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, though we do know that we do know that uh, Jacob did have a well somewhere in the vicinity. It's at the, mount, it's at the foot of Mount Gerizim. This is on the south side of a valley in which Nablus sits, and on the north side of the valley is the Mount of Ebal. And you know why those are important. Because in Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter, Moses told Israel, and he also told Joshua, when you go into the land, I want you to take these tables of the law and and all the ordinances, and I want you to stand the tribes of Israel in front of these two mountains. And in Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter, he said, there will be curses upon you if you disobey, and they stood in front of Mount Ebal to represent the curses of God. But Mount Gerizim was the good mount. This represented obedience, and if you will follow them, God will bless you in the land that, you, that he is taking you. And in Joshua, the eighth chapter, that was fulfilled. Israel did that, and they stood in front of Mount Gerizim and in front of Mount Ebal. And it is at the foot of Mount Gerizim that Jacob's well was located. This was a holy mountain for the Samaritans. They believed that this is where Noah's ark had landed, and he had disembarked. They believed that Mount Gerizim was where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. They believed that this is where Moses said you were to go three times a year for the great feast of Judaism. And so Jesus comes there in midday. His disciples have gone to the village of Sychar to to buy food, and he meets the Samaritan woman there. And I know you know this story well, but let's recount very briefly what's happened. Jesus then asked her for something to drink, and she is stunned. How could this Jew, a man, ask her, a Samaritan, and a woman for something to drink? She's perplexed. And then Jesus, second part of the conversation, he offers her water. He offers her living water. And she asks, how can you give me water? You don't have a bucket. And the well is so deep. And by the way, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and his sheep and his flocks fed from it? Jesus doesn't give up. Third part of the conversation, Jesus then offers her not just water, but he says, you see, the water that I'm going to give you is eternal water. It's living water that lasts forever. And then she says, well, give me that water. I don't want to have to come here and draw water every day. She doesn't understand what he means by living water. Give me that water so that I will never thirst again. And then Jesus changes the conversation in a very strange way, but a very pertinent way, because he sees in her heart and he knows who she is. And he tells her to bring her husband to the well. And she responds, she doesn't have a woman. Uh, She doesn't have a husband. And Jesus knows. He says, I know you don't. You've been married five times. And the man that you are now with, 
is not your husband. And she is shocked, I think. And she looks at him and she says, I know that you must be a prophet. Now, who might she think this is? Maybe even this is the prophet like Moses that is to come when she responds. And then she challenges him. She kind of deflects him again. You see, Jesus is getting too close to her. She wants to seek, but she doesn't want to. She's a reluctant and somewhat skeptical hearer. And she says, I know you're a prophet, but you know our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that we're to worship in Jerusalem. She changes the subject. And that is the background then for today's text. What is it that the Father seeks? And what is this thing called worship? And what is Jesus going to tell her? And in verse number 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, that is Mount Zion, will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For you see, salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Stunning revelation. You know what happens after this then. She, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will teach us all things. She sees the Messiah as a teacher. And then you know what Jesus says. I am. Ego, I me. I am he. She still doesn't quite understand what that is, but her heart is stirred, and she goes and she tells the people in Sychar. She runs and she tells the people in Sychar, and they come then, and his disciples have arrived, and they look out there, and the fields are white unto harvest. And they come and they tell him, we now believe. Not because of what the woman says, but we now believe because of what you have just told us as he speaks to them, and he reveals his Messiahship to them. Pretty incredible revelations. There are two things that define genuine worship here, and they're obvious, spirit and in truth. And they have, I think they relate to two things. I think one relates to identity, and one relates to the Word of God. You see, identity, who is God? And who are we? If we understand that, that leads us to spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is linked to our identity and God's identity. The second has to do with God's Word, what He commands, what He commands us to do, and our obedience. That will lead then to true worship. If we know what God commands and if we do what He commands, our worship will be true. So I think that this passage revolves around those two ideas, the identity of God in ourselves and then how we perceive God's Word. First of all, spiritual worship, spiritual worship is based on our identity. You see, God's identity is what? He says here in verse number 24, God is what? God is spirit. Well, when you unpack that, when you unfold that, when you look at what the rest of Scripture says about that, it's pretty amazing. You see, His Spirit hovered upon the deep. It was His Spirit that created all things that exist from nothing. 
His spirit existed before all, and his spirit is above all. His spirit is living being, not an inanimate substance. God is spirit is not being less than something. It's more than everything. You see, he is living being, not just an abstract idea. His spirit is a real thing. Sometimes we think of spirit as being less, but it's not. God's spirit is the fullest and better being than anything. It's not some kind of shallow reality. It's not some some kind of ghostly, ephemeral sort of thing, but the spirit of God is real. It's the most real thing that there is. His spirit is prior to. His spirit is superior to not just all stuff, all matter, because he created matter. It's superior and before all living things. All life comes from the spirit of God. His spirit is eternal. His spirit initiated the cosmos, created the cosmos. His spirit lives now. He lives now. And his spirit will continue to live even after this age is over and after this cosmos comes to an end. It is eternal. His spirit is unrepresentable. What that means is there is no physical object that can adequately express this spirit. There's no physical object that can express his fullness. Anything that attempts to do so and we think represents God, we're in danger of making it into an idol. His spirit is unconfined. His spirit cannot be confined to a space or a place. Oh, we come here to worship him, yes. But he's not confined by these four walls and this ceiling and this floor. No, he is unconfined. You see, it's not a temple in Jerusalem, he says, where we'll worship. And it's not on this Mount Gerizim that we'll worship. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. You see, God does not inhabit physical buildings. Oh, he is with us, but this isn't his residence. We know that. Nathan told David that when David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, don't worry. Tell David he's not going to do it. It's going to be his son. But another part of that revelation in 2 Samuel 7, just before he got the eternal covenant from God, God wanted him to understand, I do not inhabit and stay and reside in buildings. Solomon affirms this at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings, the 8th chapter. He understands that. As splendid as the temple is, God is not confined to it. Isaiah, in the last chapter, as he then brings his prophecies to a conclusion in Isaiah 66, he concludes his prophecy by saying this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you should build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. He cannot be contained. He is eternal spirit. Stephen proclaims this as they're about to stone him. And imagine this, all of these religious leaders who have put their hope and their trust in the temple are about to stone him for his blasphemy and his, his heresy. And he looks at him and he tells them the same thing. God cannot be contained in your temple. Paul, as he stands on Mars Hill, and those skeptical Epicureans and Stoics, many of whom don't really believe much in the Pantheon anymore, but he says, you worship an unknown God. And he cannot be, he is true God, 
the one that you don't know, and he cannot be contained in temples. He cannot be confined. God is spirit. God made all matter, places, and spaces, and he made them to be good, but not to be worshiped. Worshipful devotion on our part and our meaningful purpose in life cannot be found in materialistic things. We know that. The worship of materialistic things and buildings that contain them and pilgrimages that then find these holy places to be special and have some saving value simply make them into idols. Worship of material things is idolatrous. We know that. Which literally means an empty image. That's what the word idol means. An empty image. It contains nothing. It represents nothing substantive. God cannot be represented fully in any kind of physical object. Worship of any person besides God is not just idolatrous. It's blasphemous. Because literally blasphemy is slandering the good name of God. God is spirit. But you see, he's also father in verse 21 and 23. He's not just God. Now, God is God, but he's not just God. He, he is more than that. You know, the Greek idea of God is God is distant and removed, far away and detached. And what we do is we invoke God by using some kind of special incantation, and then God will come and visit us. And with the idea that if God comes and visits us, maybe we might be able to manipulate him. We might be able to manipulate her by our human words, by eloquent words. And there's an idea of reciprocity there. If we can just please this God, he will give us things. And there's a contract that is established in pagan worship. You see, that idea of God is very limited. That idea of God he is an object of devotion. Now, we use that term about, our, about God. We say he's the object of our devotion, but not in that sense. That is an idolatrous sense. We can never make God into an object. No, he is, yes, transcendent, but he's also eminent. And that's what this passage says. He's Father. He, he is above everything. He's transcendent. He's high and holy. And Isaiah comes into the temple, and he is stunned at the presence of God who is transcendent. But he's also nearby. He is Father. He is the eternal Father who is in relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is Creator Father who generated all of life, and he loves his creation and cares for it. He's the loving Father who providentially cares for all that he has made. And he desires to relate with that creation. He is humankind's father. He is a father of all families on the face of this earth, the head of all families with supreme authority. He is covenant father for his people, the people that he has chosen to be his special people, and that is those who seek him in spirit and in truth. He has redeemed. The fatherhood of God, I think, in this passage warns us about a very seductive danger. And that is, it is possible to make God into an idol. It is possible to make God into an idol. What do I mean by that? God is God and God is spirit. But when we objectify him in this sense, we, we make him into an object that we worship. And we do like the pagans. We begin to think that we can contain him. We begin to think that we can control him. We begin to think that we can contract with him. And if we please him, he will do what we want. Then we have objectified him in the way that the pagans do their idols. 
No, God is far more than object of worship. And I understand what we mean when we say that. When we say He's the object of our worship, what we mean is He is the one that receives it. And grammatically, that, that, that's sound. And what I'm about to say doesn't sound grammatically accurate. To make God subject would suggest God worships. God doesn't worship. That's not what I mean by this. But God is subject in this respect. You see, He is the author of the story. He's the one that tells the story. He's the one that brought the story into existence. He is the subject. He is the source that generates the worship. He is the Father who initiates every worship encounter. We don't do that. He does through His Spirit. He is the Father Spirit who reveals Himself. He is the subject of worship. He is the Father Spirit who prompts us and convicts us and causes us to respond in worship. We must never objectify God to the point that we make Him an idol. We must remember He is also the subject of worship. And it also has to do with our identity, not just identity of God and God the Father, but our identity. We are spiritual beings. We are living souls. God created us in His image, and He breathed into Adam His nephesh, that is, His breath. Jesus says this, You're a living soul. What does it profit a man, a person, if he gained the whole world, and yet he forfeit his what? His body? No, his what? His soul. We're living souls. We're temples of the Holy Spirit if we're Christ followers. We, as we said last week, we're living stones in the spiritual house of God. We're spiritual beings. We are part of the priesthood of believers, 1 Peter 2, and we are called for the purpose of doing what? Lifting up spiritual sacrifices. We are spiritual beings. His kingdom is spiritual. Jesus looked at the officials, looked at Pilate, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He looked at Nicodemus in the third chapter just before this, and he said what? You must be born not just of the water, but of the Spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. We have a natural body, but this natural body someday is going to be sown into the ground. We are going to die. And we are promised that when that happens, then Paul tells the Corinthians, we will be raised not a natural body, but a spiritual body, better than what we have now. What does he say to the Corinthians? So also the res- is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy or the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Spiritual worship is about God is spirit, and he's more than God. He's God the Father who loves us, and we're spiritual beings who relate to him. You see, we're created as spiritual beings, and we're inhabited if we follow Christ. We're empowered if we are a Christian by the Holy Spirit who inhabits us for the purpose of worshiping Father Spirit. The other thing has to do with the Word of God. You see, true worship, true worship then, we talked about spiritual worship. Now, true worship is based on God's Word. There are two problems with that. Number one, some people worship falsely because they have the right motives, but they have the wrong facts. Other people worship falsely because they have the right facts, but they have the wrong motives. Look at this situation with a Samaritan woman. Yes, she was skeptical and she was reluctant, but she became a seeker, and then she became an evangelist. She was persuaded. 
she had, I think, the right motive, but she had the wrong facts. And that was false worship. You see, she did not recognize that her deepest need was not the physical water. Her deepest need was the spiritual water that only Jesus Christ could give. She had the wrong facts. She believed that the Messiah would come through Samaritan lineage. The Jews knew that it would come through the tribe of Judah. She had the wrong facts. She thought that full truth would come through Moses, but it came through Jesus. It was not going to come from Moses coming back to that well, but the man standing right in front of her. She had the wrong facts. God's plan was not going to come through the Torah alone, as wonderful and God revealed as the law was, it wasn't enough. God also gave the writings and the prophets, and the, the full story was going to be, would, would, would come in the fulfillment of the prophets. She had the wrong facts. The Messiah was not just going to be a good teacher, and that's what some would have you believe Jesus is today. He was a wonderful teacher. He was, but he's far more than that. He did not only teach all things, he laid down his life for all sin, for all time. She had the wrong facts. Salvation would not come on Mount Gerizim. It would come on a different mount, but it wasn't where the temple was. It was going to come on a, on a hill with an old rugged cross on it. She had the wrong facts, but she had the right motives. But look at the others. Jesus had talked to Nicodemus, the religious leaders. They had the right facts. The Jews knew that the Messiah would come through David's lineage out of Bethlehem. They had the right facts. The Sadducees even had the right facts. They were observing proper ritual ceremonial worship at the true temple according to the Torah. They had the right facts. The Pharisees were right. They aimed at a righteous lifestyle, moral obedience to God, and pure living. They had the right facts, but they all had the wrong motive. Just the opposite, you see, of the Samaritan woman. Think about what Jesus says to the scribes. What does he say? Watch out for the scribes with their arrogant vanity and their selfishness, their motives. They walk around in flowing robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the public marketplace. They take the chief places in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour, they destroy widows' houses, and they show, make a great show of public prayers. They had the right facts, but they had the wrong motives. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, full of their legalism and hypocrisy, and he calls them whitewashed sepulchers, clean on the outside but rotten to the core, blind guides who mislead the people with wrong interpretations of the law. They burden the people with impossible requirements that they could not fulfill themselves. They strain at a gnat, and they swallow a camel. They had the right facts, but the wrong motives. He looks at the Sadducees and their disingenuity. They ask him a question about marriage in heaven. What they were really saying is, we don't believe in the resurrection. And you know what he says? You are ignorant. Even though you think you know the facts, you misuse the facts for the wrong motives, and you do not understand the resurrection. Then he looks at all of them <laughs> in Mark, the seventh chapter, and he indicts them all in their concern about purity. He said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites, as it is written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, they worship, 
They worship me in vain with emptiness. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. They neglect the commandment of God and hold simply to the tradition of men. You see, this is not true worship. It's not enough to have the right facts. We must have the right attitude and the right humble uh, attitude before God to walk humbly before Him. Let me summarize it this way. Genuine worship, I think we see from this passage, is not insincere. It's not empty, heartless. It's not empty and simply a mechanical desire to please God when we're, in fact, seeking to please ourselves. Genuine worship is not self-serving. It's God-honoring. Genuine worship is not superficial, perfunctory, and ceremonial only. We have ceremony. We have liturgy here, but it's not limited to that. Genuine worship is not contractual. It is covenantal. It's not like pagan reciprocity. We do not do the things that we do in worship, either here, hopefully, in this sanctuary, or when we depart, so that God will do good things for us. No. We do what we do because God has already done the greatest thing of all, all history for us already. Genuine worship is not dependent on eloquent words or human philosophy. Genuine worship is none of these things. Genuine worship is this. It begins with God's truth, knowing and obeying His truth with a sincere heart. It's not knowing the facts, the right things about God's Word, but believing the message. It's not just assenting with our minds to the message, but it is trusting the message, who is Himself, Jesus Christ. Trusting the written Word that reveals the living Word and trusting that Word of God that we know is Jesus the Christ. Genuine worship is not just knowing about Christ, as we talked about last week, but it is knowing Him and following Him continuously. In John the 8th chapter, you know it well, Jesus talks about the truth. And He puts it in that context. You see, true worship is, is this. It begins this way. You follow me, you listen to my words, and you do what I say. If you continue in my word, you're my disciples, and you will know the truth, the truth, not just true facts. You'll know the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You will know me. And guess what? The truth, I will make you free. You see, true worship begins with the truth that we identify as Jesus Christ, who has given us the word of God. And it results then in a spiritual direction given by God. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, and we then are fully spiritual beings. We die to self. That natural soul goes to sleep, dies, and is resurrected and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In John 14, after he says to his disciples, don't worry, then he says, I'm going to send you the Spirit. And how does he define the Spirit? the spirit of truth. He says that spirit of truth is going to help you. He's going to teach you all things. Yes, he is going to teach you the things that I have told you and bring them back to your mind. And then in John 16, he says, and that spirit is going to guide you into all truth for this purpose. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to do what? To glorify the Father and the Son. What he's saying there is, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to direct and guide you spiritually so that you might also be able to glorify the Father and the Son. That, my friends, is spiritual worship. What does the Father seek this morning? He seeks those that seek Him spiritually. That have heard the message of the gospel that says that someday we have a place prepared for us, which is a spiritual house that He has built. That when this mortal body is sown, this natural body is sown, it is going to be resurrected as a spiritual body and live eternally with Him. Serve and reign with Him forever. And we serve Him in truth as we go forward and follow in obedience to His word. In the hymn of invitation this morning, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, it says this, Thy truth unchanged hath ever stood. Thou savest those who own Thee call. To them who seek thee, seek how in spirit and in truth thou art good. To them who find thee, all in all. This morning, God extends the invitation through his son Jesus Christ to us all. To seek him in spirit and truth. And he asks this question. What is your response as he asks the Samaritan woman? More than a prophet, Lord of all creation, Savior divine, invites you. He has a place prepared for you in eternity. What is your response this morning? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.